Welcome to the Turtle Shell Therapy Institute, a podcast made to help you learn how to feel more comfortable inside and outside of your shell. Hello, hello. I'm your host, James Nee Hundley. Today at the Institute, we're going to be talking about how your past impacts your present and your future. Like I said in our last episode, we're going to be talking about how reflecting on your past self, so child self, teen self, young adult self, you know, any any version of your past. Reflecting on that version of yourself and building compassion or some understanding for who you were back then. Now, anybody that's familiar with therapy has probably experienced that question, tell me about your childhood. Who were your close relationships or friendships growing up? Who did you confide in? Who were you close to? The reason all of those questions are so important is because it helps build understanding for who you are today. Now, I think a lot of us know logically that our past informs who we are currently, but really thinking about what, why is that? And what does that mean? So the reason therapists are always asking about the past is to try to figure out, is there something from the past that is impacting how you interpret the world today? Or is maybe, is there some unresolved trauma or any unresolved experiences that may be causing distress today? So depression, sadness, anger, anything like that. I know a lot of people who do get really frustrated by those questions. You know, I don't want to talk about the past. I just want to feel better now. I don't understand how talking about the past and bringing up old things is going to be helpful. Well, the reason that it's helpful like I was just saying, it builds understanding. And when we can have that understanding, then we can work through how that's impacting us today, build that awareness, and then start changing our patterns and the way we are interpreting things. Like I said, in past episodes, we're not trying to erase any of this because these are protections that you developed, these perspectives, the way that you interpret the world, they all helped you get through life when you were growing up. It's just now that you're as an adult or now that that situation or experience is over, it's not going to be as helpful and it's most likely overgeneralized. So when I say that, your your attachment has made you feel you have to apply these protections, these rules, these, these way of experiencing the world and seeing things into every relationship or every relationship that's similar to that one where you needed those protections. And that's not always the case. And that's where we see a lot of the distress come in around anxious attachment and avoidant attachment approaches and patterns in relationships. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes you do want to avoid certain people because they are not safe with your emotions or vulnerability. So you might want to be a little more reserved. And learning how to do that without completely dismissing your emotions or cutting off from them or completely avoiding conflict that may be necessary to move forward with something. Uh, so like if there's a coworker that you keep avoiding, but you have to work with them on a project, 
trying to figure out how to work through what is being elicited out of you so that you can have the conversation with them and work with this person if possible. Again, there's two people in, in each, at least more than one person in each situation. So you can only control what you can control. You can't control what other people do. Or with anxiety, again, anxiety is all about being proactive and trying to protect us. Now that can be helpful to a certain degree, but as we all know, anxiety can get out of hand and then start to become unhelpful or counterproductive. Especially if our anxiety is telling us that we're not as worthy as the other person. Now, that may have gotten us through some relationships, but at the cost of dismissing ourselves and our own needs and invalidating ourselves. So we want to take that out of there, but the anxiety can be helpful, especially if you know this person and have an idea of how they're going to respond or react. The helpful part of anxiety is helping you prepare for that, but it starts to get unhelpful when it becomes extremely fear-based and you start invalidating yourself. So the reason therapists ask these questions, what was your childhood like? Who were your friends growing up? Who comforted you as a child? Who did you seek out for comfort? How did they comfort you? Was it how you expected? All of these are important questions because they started to form that blueprint I was talking about in the last episode. It's forming the blueprint of how do I exist in relationship? Relationship meaning not just with your caregivers, not just with your family, not just with your romantic partners, but your friendships, the authority figures. How do you interact with the world? Your relationship with society, your relationship with yourself. All of this was formed during your childhood years and your adolescent years, and even your young adult years. Now, it's always forming, but those are the years where it's the most impactful. So some developmental psychologists and researchers would say that those, those early childhood years, so ages zero to six, and those adolescent years, so ages 13, you know, maybe even like 11, but about 13 to about 19, very, very formative years. There's a lot happening in the body and the mind. Both of those stages of human development, there's so much change that happens rapidly in a pretty short amount of time if you look at the grand scheme of everything. So in the early childhood years, zero to six, I mean, we're just thinking from birth to six years old, how much change happens in those in those few years. I mean, even when they're when they're infants to babies to toddlers, we, we talk about the stages of development in, in months instead of years because so much can change in just a matter of months in that time period. Very similar to the adolescent years. We think of how much a person changes from ages 11 even, all the way to 19, and that's when puberty is setting in and hormones are coming in. So there's just a lot of development that happens, which also means that during those years, that's why we call them the formative years. During those years, the brain is rapidly growing and taking in new information. And that's what mammals do. When we're young, we take in what primarily the adults are doing. And whether we like it or not, we absorb and start to 
create neural pathways and understanding of the world based on what we're observing and what we're experiencing. Now, it starts to broaden and peers become a big part of that. So they also inform how we interpret the world and how we um, see ourselves and our place in it. And then this all carries into adulthood. And then we have these more set ideas. The brain is fluid, we can change them, but they tend to be more set because during those, those primary years of development, those formative years, the brain is, is just more fluid and taking in a lot more because different parts of the brain are starting to activate. There's different hormones even coming into the body where it, it's changing and it, that changes the brain. Um, there's just so much that happens. So that's why those years are so important, <laughs> especially when traumas happen or attachment ruptures or attachment wounds, um, you might call them, occur. Those those are significant no matter where we are in our stages of life, but especially in those formative years, they become very impactful because, again, the brain is just more fluid and more malleable in those particular times. It always is, but especially in those preschool years, childhood, um, and particularly adolescence, very, very malleable and neuropathways are being created rapidly all the time. Now that can be really intimidating to parents, but remembering the episode about plain family therapy when we had Liliana Balon come and visit with us. One, kids are resilient. They're more aware than we give them credit for. And it's building that connection. You don't have to be perfect, but build awareness. So when there is an attachment rupture or you're misattuning, or you can tell that your kid is needing something, take care of yourself, humanize yourself so that you can be there for your children and your teens. That's going to help create a stronger sense of self and a stronger sense of safety. Because we have to remember too, they're just kids. We were just kids. We were just trying to figure it out the best we could with what we had. So that takes me right into the compassion piece that I'm going to talk about today. Almost every therapy modality that I know of asks about the past and about your childhood and has you reflect on some level how you believed other people saw you as a child and how you experienced yourself as a child, how you experienced others as a child. Um, you know, what relationships were safe, what relationships were felt not so safe. Um, how did that impact you? Do you still think about it today? Like I was saying, that all forms how we experience the world and experience ourselves today, which is why therapists ask about it and, and therapy. So when I'm working with a client, this will happen sometimes. Now, some people come to me specifically for things regarding their childhood, especially since I'm, I have a reputation of working with attachment-focused EMDR. But some people come to me for other reasons. Uh, they're having a hard time communicating with their significant other, or they just don't feel like they fit in the world, or there's stressors going on at work or in their relationship, and they're having a hard time processing it or, or navigating it. All of that has to do with their past lived experiences and what they 
took from that, what meaning they took from that. Um, and when I say that, that doesn't, that's not to say that that's not to minimize anything. And at the same time, people will experience things differently. Some people will go through a breakup and see that as they are unworthy and take all the fault and bring in a lot of, sh- and develop a lot of shame around that. Other people will leave a breakup and understand that, you know, there's two people involved in this. I had my part, they had their part. Some people will be part of a breakup and be like, nope, I had no part in it. And that was totally them. All of that is colored by a lot of things. But one of the things is our past experiences, our lived experiences. And then there's you know, several other factors that can go into that, that are forming this, this view of the situation. That's not to say that the view is ever is always wrong. But sometimes it can be misinterpreted or seen through a very specific lens based on our attachment. So compassion comes in because thinking back on when I was talking about emotions um, and the episode where I was talking about shame, shame does keep us stuck. It's trying to hold keep us accountable and trying to help us in that way because all emotions have a helpful function. And at the same time, shame can keep us very stuck. There is a meme out there that I like to think of when I'm feeling ashamed or embarrassed about my past self. It goes, if you look back on your past self and you don't cringe, then you haven't grown. I like that because it's working on building compassion for your past self and trying to take that shame out that we all will naturally have sometimes when we look back on our past selves and, and cringe or feel embarrassed. That's okay. We don't want to stay ashamed of ourselves though because again shame makes us feel like we are or we're a bad person. Whereas guilt is more okay I didn't like that I did that that was not a good thing or a nice thing or a kind thing that I did. Um, So we don't want to be stuck in this, I'm a bad person, because then we, it doesn't actually motivate us to change, like a lot of us think that it will. Um, It usually makes us maybe feel motivated for a little bit, but all the energy that goes into feeling ashamed and judging, it doesn't create a solution-focused mindset or a growth mindset. It keeps us very stuck and very stagnant. So what having compassion for your past self would look like would be looking at that past self. Noticing if you're embarrassed, ashamed, feeling cringy towards it. And acknowledging I did not like that version of myself. And the compassion, it's not enabling. It's not making excuses for your past self. It's understanding the context of the situation, especially when we're looking at your child and teen uh, versions of yourself. In those stages of development, your brain was not fully developed. You were a child. You were still learning. Now, some people have done some things that they are really ashamed of in childhood and adolescence. But the question is, where were the adults in this situation? How did they interact with you in this? How did they hold you accountable And provide space for you to see that 
this is something, yeah, don't do this anymore. And you're not a bad kid. You're not a bad person. Let's talk about how this choice came to be, what was going through your mind, how can we avoid doing it again, what else could we do? And unfortunately, a lot of us growing up maybe didn't get that opportunity consistently, if at all. And then that goes to the caregivers. What was their childhood like? And when I ask my clients about that, it's not to try and make excuses for their caregivers or the adults, or even the even if it's a, a friend or a peer of theirs, I will ask, like, what do you know about their living situation or their childhood? Do you know anything about that? And I'll make it very clear. I'm not trying to make any excuses for them or try to explain their behavior. And I want to be curious about it, mostly because what I found is when people hurt you or aren't a, don't have the emotional capacity to be there for you or give you what you need. It's just that they don't have the capacity or they don't know what to do because they probably never experienced it. Or if they did, it may have been inconsistent or they were having yeah, a moment of trying to work through whatever is going on with them. Now that's not an excuse because especially when we're talking about caregivers and adults, it's on them to do their own work and not put that on their children. Then going back to how did you humanize yourself today, which Liliana talked about in our episode about playing family therapy. Humanize yourself. If you make a mistake, if you lose your temper, if you don't know something, just own it. Model for your children what it looks like to have humility, to have compassion for yourself even. Now, a really important thing about that with children, having compassion for yourself does not translate to letting your kids know all of your problems. Now, it's okay for your kids to know that you're going through a hard time and to avoid making it their problem or their your emotions, their responsibility, which I see a lot of adults and caregivers do unintentionally, make their problems or their emotions the responsibility of the child or the teenager. You can avoid that by saying something like, I'm really sorry I lost my temper there. You know, that that wasn't fair. I am going through a lot, but that's not your problem. I I need to work on managing my temper better or slowing down and thinking before I, I respond to you. So I'm going to work on that. I'm really sorry. This really wasn't about you. That's, that's the main reason why I emphasize that. Um, one, if you're with kids or other people, you can say that to, to them to not put your, make your emotions the, their responsibility, but to let them know that you do, you do feel bad and you're making an effort to change it. It's also good to show that to children in particular so that they know how to do that and what that looks like. It also lets them know that it wasn't about them, which when I'm working with clients and we're talking about child child traumas or attachment ruptures that happened growing up, that's exactly what happened. They will take the blame. Well, I'm a hard, I was a hard kid. So that's why my parents lost their temper out of me a lot. No, it, it really was on your parents as the adults in those, mo- in those moments to figure out how to parent you and not make you feel like you are too much for them or a challenge because that 
that creates this low view of self. This idea, it carries into adulthood that I am a hard child. I am a difficult person to be around. It does not typically do what adults and caregivers are hoping it's going to do, which is teach the child to manage themselves better. That's not how that works. Especially in child development, kids are too concrete at that time. Saying things like, ooh, you know, that, that surprised me. I, I did not know how to respond to you at that time. I'm going to work on that. Here's some things that we can do together. It needs to be about togetherness because one thing I learned in my time as an early childhood mental health consultant is that you, most of us can't really do things when it comes to other people. It's really difficult to do them unless we've experienced them ourselves. Co-regulation in childhood leads to self-regulation because it builds us in another blueprint. It builds this internal blueprint of, okay, this is how I can regulate myself. And I am a worthy person because again, we get stuck when we feel ashamed or when we feel really scared. That's a big part of trauma and trauma therapy. The trauma has kept you stuck because it was so overwhelming. It was so scary. And a lot of times there is shame that comes in with that. The fact that you got overwhelmed, the fact that you didn't know what to do, the fact that it even happened. Shame for different people can develop in so many different ways. And that fear and that shame will keep you stuck in these attachment ruptures, these attachment wounds, these traumas. So that's why therapy can be so helpful because part of my job as the therapist is to sit with you. A lot of people feel like therapy is just having somebody make you relive your worst experiences. That's why they don't like the questions about the past. When really, it's to give you an opportunity to be witnessed, maybe even have a corrective experience. My clients will tell me some of their most lonely, darkest times. And it can be so healing for them to know that somebody is here and actually is witnessing them, seeing them, doing their best to feel and understand them and hear them and let them know that was really scary. And even just that validation, just that connection can help with the processing and help get unstuck. So we can stop living in the past and enjoy our present and move forward into our future. I have worked with some people who really will look at me and say, no, I was a bad person. I did bad things. And objectively looking at it, yeah, some of these things that people have shared with me have been illegal, have been crimes, have absolutely hurt other people. And of course, you know, I may have my initial thoughts on it. And I know based on what I have seen, what I have learned, what I've experienced and witnessed is in these moments, that's exactly, this is what you did, past tense. And now you are here. You are working on processing it. And part of that is taking accountability. And the best way to take accountability is to get the shame out of it. Because again, the shame gets us stuck. The shame can 
put us in this cycle where then maybe even we start to take on a victim mentality because we think we are so worthless and then we feel like we need to prove it to other people because that doesn't feel good to feel worthless. It doesn't feel good to feel like you're a bad person that's not worthy of any love or redemption. So then we either start to act out or we start to withdraw within or fluctuate between the two. But we can take accountability for what we've done. And then when I tell my clients that are telling me these things, is you're here now, you can't change the past. The people that you hurt, part of their healing and the right that they have is they don't have to accept your forgiveness and they are allowed to have boundaries, maybe even firm boundaries with you. That's the natural consequence of the actions of your past self. And now what can we do in this present moment for you to be able to move forward? Now, part of that may be wanting to apologize to the people that you hurt. And that is, that is great. That's awesome. I encourage that. With the full understanding that they get to choose whether they accept your forgiveness or not. And that's not necessarily them holding on to the past or being resentful or hateful. Part of healing is it takes it, it takes its own time, it takes its own pace. So the same is true for forgiveness. If we try to force somebody to forgive too soon, that's traumatizing and invalidating of their own experience. So I'm not saying hold on to grudges. What I'm saying is make sure that you're honoring yourself. So now switching to the person who was hurt, absolutely. You can work towards forgiveness and don't rush yourself through it. That's something that we'll be talking about in the next episode too, where I interview Kelly Smythe Dent, an EMDR consultant that I've, I've been lucky to work with and learn from. Um, pacing is really important even for things like EMDR that are meant to be fast, pacing is important because if we don't pace things out, then we don't really heal. It's sort of like if we have like a broken bone and we let it heal kind of just enough, but then we go to use it too soon before it's fully healed, it, it's going to break again or hurt or be in pain. It's going to impact the healing in a negative way. So forgiveness, yes, do it for yourself. That will also help you. And you need to do it at your own pace and in your own time. And so on either side of the spectrum, because I bring that up too, because I know a lot of people will feel ashamed that I haven't forgiven the person who hurt me yet and feel this sense of shame. And we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Like, well, do you feel ready to forgive that person? A lot of times there will be at least a part of them that feels like if I do that, I feel like that I'm invalidating my experience. And that's important to recognize. We don't want to ignore that or push that away. We want to understand what healing still needs to happen, if any. Or do we still need to let this wound sit for a little while? Maybe that's part of the healing. There are also some things too you know, for just being realistic with the things that can happen to people in this world, there are some things too that maybe like we will never forgive. Now that can sound very defeatist. I know in this 
culture we have, which I, I attribute mostly to toxic positivity, this idea that we have to forgive. But there are some things that happen to people that are just horrific. Now, that doesn't mean that the person who did it to you is forever a horrific, horrible person that deserves nothing but good things. Because I do believe in the power of change and people being able to take accountability for their actions and have that be part of their own growth and healing. And the person that got hurt, they don't necessarily have to forgive to move on and grow. Now that can be kind of a controversial opinion, I know, but the way I see it, I don't, I don't want to make somebody invalidate their lived experience, especially if it was something that really hurt them. I don't think, I don't think that's going to actually help them heal or move forward because for some of the like different assaults, different forms of trauma, different violations, different ways that people can hurt other people. I don't necessarily think we always have to forgive the other person. And with the healing process, it's, maybe looking at yourself processing through the shame that was created through that experience, you know, either any self blame or the sense that I can't trust anybody, which if we think about that, that I can't trust anybody is also a mistrust of myself. I can't trust that I can assess if people are safe or not. So I'm just going to assume everybody is dangerous. Logically, it makes sense. It's a protective factor and it's not very functional and it doesn't lead to a very positive quality of life. So that would be the focus. If we, if the person I'm working with does feel like forgiving the perpetrator or the person that hurt them is part of that healing, I'll absolutely honor that and we will work with that. But I don't make that a requirement. And I find that gives people a lot of relief because we're going to work on how that experience impacted you. And we're going to work through all of the emotions. And some people do down the road towards the end of the, of our time, to, our work together, do decide that they do want to forgive that person. But sometimes they don't. Because it's what is the meaning of the forgiveness? Is this somebody I even have to interact with anymore? Now, absolutely, I do believe that's true for, for lots of people. You know, some people... I need that forgiveness to be able to move on. And like I said, I will work towards that if that is what is feeling helpful and we are both feeling like it's not invalidating your lived experience or making you take responsibility that isn't yours. And I have seen a lot of people be able to grow, feel empowered and move forward without going through that whole forgiveness process. A lot of times what it looks more like is forgiving themselves for letting it impact them for so long because even though for me and my perspective it makes absolute sense why it would impact you for so long a lot of people will feel a lot of shame like they wasted a lot of time with this hurt but again it's emotional pain attachment wounds trauma it's all like physical injury it takes time to heal and different people might need different amounts of time of healing to really get to a place where they can move forward after the injury occurred.
in the guided journal I, I wrote, in the first section, pretty early on in the book, I start asking these questions. So one of the first rounds is, when you were young, who did you go to for comfort and why? How were you received? And was it different from what you were needing in those moments? And do you feel this impacts how you seek comfort today? If so, reflect on why. So these are three different prompts that I have the readers journal about. So like I was saying before, we ask these questions because those inform the blueprint, especially the, the one specifically about comfort. These questions are getting to how did you, what did you learn about comfort, seeking comfort, um, what is worthy of receiving comfort, because that's a thing that a lot of us are taught at a young age and it's carried down through generations. What warrants comfort? What is worth somebody else's time to comfort you? So specifically I'm referencing, you know, a lot of us might've heard like, oh, rub some dirt on it. Oh, get up, you're fine. You know, so what, what was being taught to us in those moments is this is not something that warrants comfort. But then when our parents would hug us and, and hold us or, you know, our friends or a authority figure caregiver, then we would learn, okay, this is something that warrants comfort, or this is what I have to do to get the comfort, which we'll see a lot with people who will escalate situations. Um, you know, that's a common thing I'll hear. Why do I have to get to yelling and screaming? for people to take me seriously. And then people will learn, I have to get really upset pretty, I, a lot of people just bypass and jump to that. I need to get upset because what I have learned in most of my relationships and most of my lived experiences is that unless I am big and I am loud, people will not take me seriously. We'll see that a lot with the anxious attachment style, whereas the avoidant attachment style will be more of the, op more of the other end of the spectrum. Nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to take my needs seriously anyway. So why even communicate them? Why even worry about them? And then you'll see that detachment. And that will build a resentment. Whether the person with avoidant attachment realizes it or not, they will see other people and judge them for having needs or needing comfort, especially if it was something that they did not receive comfort for growing up because they were taught this is not worthy of comfort. Now you may logically, that person may logically know, oh yes, somebody, somebody fell down or something really scary or really awful happened. And sure, logically they can be allowed to have emotions, but I wasn't allowed to have that growing up. So why do they get to have that? Or, you know, I, I was strong enough to get through that. Why aren't they strong enough to get through that? What's wrong with them? And those are the sort of beliefs that an avoidant attachment style can can create again for protection and also remembering too that spectrum of anger which resentment lie falls in it is an emotion of justice this isn't fair i wasn't allowed to have safety when the when i wanted comfort or needed comfort so what makes them think they're special that's not fair that doesn't always happen, but that, that's, that's a common thing that will happen around avoidant attachments. Similar things can happen with anxious attachment too, but there tends to be more of a, of a push-pull. Um, usually with a person with an anxious attachment, if they build resentment for somebody else's needs, all of that can be true, like I was talking about the avoidant attachment, but then a lot of times guilt and anxiety will come up 
around that because um, just feeling bad, understanding what it's like to have their own emotions dismissed. So then feeling bad that then they are doing that too, which then feeds more of that low view of self. You know, I'm a bad person, which builds more shame. So you can see how with the insecure attachment styles, you know, it can all be formed based on how we received comfort when we would try to seek it out. <laughs> Maybe take a moment here as you're listening to this podcast. Um, who, who did you seek out for comfort growing up? You know, who were the people that you would seek out for comfort? How did they respond to you? Was it what you were expecting or what you were needing? What did that teach you? Has that carried on to present day? You know, do you notice those thoughts and feelings coming up or um, maybe even remembering those experiences when somebody is seeking comfort from you or if you are wanting to seek comfort from someone else? When was it successful? Who were your safe people? Who were the adults that you knew you could always go to and they would meet your needs? Did you have any adults or even peers that were like that because the peers are just as important. You know, I keep talking about caregivers and adults, but especially as we get older, you know, become, well, really peers can impact us at any age, but their input becomes much more valuable to us as we get older, especially once we get into our teen years, then they become really impactful. We're seeking them out. Again, that's true across the lifespan, but it's particularly becomes more significant as as we get older as children and into into adolescence the exercise after that in my book well there's a there's an affirmation that i have in there that's going to be really important as you go into this next exercise i didn't know then what i know now that's really important when reflecting on our past selves not just child and adolescent but just our past selves in general Pretty much almost always, I would say what I see is people made decisions based on the information that they had at the time. Now, sometimes they're able to slow down and really try to take a look at everything and make the best informed decision that they could with the information that they had. Again, attachment, our lived experiences impact our interpretation of, of situations and how, we're, how we should respond that blueprint. So sometimes it all just becomes automatic. It's just something we just do, especially the older we get, because it's, it's ingrained now. It's become a strong neural pathway that we've learned that when this happens, it means this, and I need to do this. So if you weren't aware of those things, or if you were aware, but didn't know what to do with them or how to change them, having compassion for that version of yourself because now you do but you didn't then you didn't know how this was going to turn out you didn't know this was happening or you didn't know how to redirect it and again i'm going to keep repeating this it's not enabling it's not making excuses for yourself take accountability for your part but taking accountability means okay i have this new information this new knowledge and i'm going to integrate that now into my decision-making going forward. I'm trying to be conscious, trying to be mindful of that. And we're not machines. Um, you know, sometimes it is the situation happens once 
and we are able to adjust and change from there. Sometimes we might need to have repeated experiences. It doesn't mean that you are bad or weak or not smart enough to make the change. It means that there is something happening and it may be deeply ingrained. And I, my part is to slow down and keep working on that to try and change it. Because especially the older we get, we can always change our neural pathways, but it does get harder because there is more and more experiences that have sort of, I guess, paved, you could say, if we think of it as a road, has paved this pathway into a much easier road to go down. And now we're trying to create and carve out, pave out an entirely new pathway. And that takes time. Um, it's not impossible, but it does take time. And therapies like EMDR can, can make it go faster from what I've seen and experienced, make it go faster than talk therapy. But really it's, it's any therapy that's helpful, you know, that can really get into the root cause of the issues that can address the, the thoughts, the emotions, uh, get into the body and really help you explore those feelings, understand them and process them. So I didn't know then what I know now, that's going to be a really important affirmation and mantra to keep in mind during this journey. And just in general, in your day to day, um, even if it's just from like 10 minutes ago, you may have learned new, new information in the last 10 minutes. You made a decision based on the information that you had at the time. And a lot of us were taught to have specific reactions. This is happening. I have had experiences that taught me that it meant this and that I have to do this thing. And we're slowing down for trying to build awareness and understanding the past is a big part of that. So the other exercise that I have in my book pretty early on, when we were children, we did not have our adult knowledge. We hadn't had the experiences yet. Think back on yourself as a child, as a teen and at your present age. What are three words that come to mind when you think of yourself in each stage of life? So three is kind of an arbitrary number, but I want you to be thinking of more than maybe just like the first, the very first thing that pops to your mind. And some people may not have something that pops to their mind right away, or, you know, or if you slow down, you may notice there's an image or a feeling or maybe a straight up thought, like a narrative thought that does have some sort of descriptions in it if we sit with it. So if we think of our child self, and you could even break this down to different parts of your childhood, because childhood, you know, this early childhood, well, I mean, yeah, there's babyhood, toddlerhood, preschooler, um, you know, childhood, later childhood, and then getting into like pre-adolescence. So like you could really, so when I say child, I'm thinking anywhere from like, yeah, like babyhood all the way up to ages like 10 or 11. So you could break that up too into different different sections or different stages through that part too. And just think of what are some work descriptions that I think of when I think of, of me in that stage of life. Doing the same for your teen self. And so that could be like 11 or 12 all the way up to like 19 or 20. So you can break that up into different stages. But just thinking, when I think of this stage of my life, this age, how do I think of myself? And I don't have this on here, but if you really want to extend that, how do I 
believe or know how other people experienced me or saw me. Now that one, it's important because if you talk to most people who knew you growing up, uh, you know, adults, kids, or peers, I guess they'd be adults now, but peers, they, they're going to, they're going to have some sort of narrative about you. That's just what we do as people. They're going to have some thought about you and that may or may not be true. So that's where you want to take that in, like take it in. Like, was that true? And keeping in mind, other people have their own attachments. They have their own psychology that influence and that influence how they interpret the world and their perspective and how, even how they remember things. Um, which may or may not be accurate. Human memory is one of the least accurate forms of recalling information because um, it's so painted by emotions and and our perspectives and our attachment styles. So do take it with a grain of salt, but it could be helpful. Um, I think it can mostly be helpful because most of us do have a sense of how certain people experienced us. Usually the people that had the most negative reports of how they experienced us is what sticks with us. And so it's also important when somebody has a positive recollection of you to also be able to entertain that and take that in, you know, that can also be possibly true. You know, don't just, dis don't just dismiss either right away, but also don't take either as like extremely like true. Cause a lot of people too, when they recall what you were like, like when you ask that, or even if you ask people, what am I like now, they tend to give sort of a all or nothing, either or answer. Uh, so either like it's all good or it's all bad. Um, maybe we get some neutral, but most people are, are more complex on that. Like there's a mix of things. So doing all of this too for your present day and seeing, are there any similarities? Are there any differences? Are there things that I've decided or I have believed other people who have stated that, okay, this is just a core part of who I am and not totally dismissing that. And at the same time, opening up to, is this still true? A lot of people say this about me. They think this is true about me. Is it actually true? Or is that an old narrative that maybe was true in the past or maybe was never true? It can be really powerful to just sit and reflect. And then as you do that, you may, you'll start to notice or at least get curious about, well, am I, is this why I do these certain things or act this way around certain people because of this narrative that either I created for myself or other people put on me that may or may not be true, but is probably like somewhere in between. Um, so yeah, that's just a good exercise to try as you are getting to know yourself, trying to understand your attachment styles now, I realize that as I'm talking about this, it's coming across very much as like, love yourself, love your past self. So just repeating, take accountability for your actions. And having compassion doesn't necessarily mean you're not allowed to be upset with your past self or maybe even dislike a, a past version of yourself. What it means is trying to have understanding. Now, I think having that anger, that frustration, the sadness, I think that's all an important part of the process. It's a grieving process. You're grieving who you once were, and you're grieving that you wish you knew then what you know now. That grieving process, I think, is one of the main ways to get to a level of acceptance. Again, so acceptance is not resignation of, well, this is just what happened. Get over it. It's Acceptance is understanding this happened. And especially when we come to 
trauma or tragedies. It was awful that happened. You know, you may never be happy or okay with what happened. We, d- we don't need silver linings and things. Um, when you've gone through something awful, we don't necessarily need to think of the silver lining or the, the lesson because that can invalidate the experience and then keep us stuck and actually have the opposite effect where then we're not actually processing it. Because like I was talking about with forgiveness, it's, we're moving too quickly through it. We're going out to play soccer when our, our ankle is still healing. We're not ready yet. But we can do things to move forward. We can try and build understanding while also honoring and holding the anger and the sadness. Now, we can acknowledge and honor the shame, but the shame is the one that I really focus on either disinviting or acknowledging and then giving your energy to the other parts of of it, the other emotions, the other perspectives. Because shame is telling you this happened because you are bad or you deserved it. So we don't, that's not going to be helpful in this situation. That's not actually taking accountability. That's just saying you're a bad person because something bad happened. It's blame. So we want to address that because even if it was something you you did, like if we look at it and actually was something you did, being ashamed and making that making the meaning of that be that you are a bad person that deserves bad things, it's not true and it's not helpful. It's just going to keep you stuck. And then we also want to look at the fear, depending on the thing that happened too. There may be a very strong fear of, I can't trust the world. I can't trust others. Which like I was saying before too, that that is also a level of shame. I can't trust my own perception. So I have to live in fear and assume it will happen again. And that's part of your amygdala trying to protect you. And it's not a fully, it's not a a perspective based in full reality. There are dangerous things that happen in this world. There are, there are people out in this world that because of their own pain, because of their own trauma, their own, um, their own need or sense for, of, of survival will drive them to do bad things, hurtful things. And that's not everybody in this world. So if we can work through that, again, by acknowledging it all, holding it all, honoring it, and at the same time, not letting that become a reality, not taking these emotions as ultimate truth, this is true all the time, but just acknowledging it and trying to assess the situation more in our prefrontal cortex, that logical part of our brain, then that can help us actually assess the situation. Is this actually dangerous? Where my emotions, where my um, attachment defenses, my trauma def- protections, were they correct or were, was it a false alarm? It all matters. And having compassion and understanding stepping away from the shame and the blame is what's actually really helpful in helping us move forward and not repeating patterns or staying stuck in the past or letting our past completely influence our our present day and our futures. 
Another exercise I like to do with my clients involves going to a meeting space, which I talk about a meeting space in the book. Um, Essentially, the meeting space is a place in your mind that you can go to to interact with either different parts of yourself, different emotions. Um, And I also will use it to have my clients go back and interact with past versions of themselves. So that may be a child a child version of themselves, adolescent, it may even be a version of themselves from last week, depending on on what we're talking about. What I have them do is go there. And we'll start off with, you know, what are some things you would like to tell that part of yourself? You know, we'll just start with all of the things to eat. And then we start to build understanding. And a lot of times what I find, and I've experienced, is when you are imagining talking to your child self, your teen self, a lot of times, a lot of compassion comes up naturally, because if you can really envision yourself and really think back to that time, you can build a lot of understanding of why maybe you did what you did, or why you acted the way you did, or why you existed or even interacted with people the way you did. And it can be really powerful, especially when we make space and we slow down And you can envision giving your child self, your teen self, or past self, whatever, whatever age or stage of development they're in, and giving them that comfort and compassion that you were needing and didn't receive. Naturally, especially when we're working with with child parts and adolescent parts, there can be a lot of grief that comes up and a lot of sadness, maybe even some anger, because why do I have to do this for myself? Why couldn't anybody do this for me at the time? Sometimes I hear some shame come up there, what was wrong with me? I hear some anger, what was wrong with them? We'll honor that. And then we'll zoom out too and look, try to look at it objectively to bring it in, not to invalidate it all, because it's all true. Why couldn't the people that you needed at the time give you what you were needing? Because you are worthy. A lot of times it's because of what was happening with those other people. Now, sometimes it may also be because you did violate something. You did violate a boundary or push a boundary and they were holding a boundary. And again, you didn't know then what you know now. And even if you did know know then what you know now, being curious what happened where that knowledge, this knowing that I had, it wasn't accessible at the time. Being curious about that, that is what is going to help you actually change because then you're getting more into your prefrontal cortex. It's a growth mindset that you're developing. How can I change what was happening so I can understand it and what can I could I do differently? How could I remind myself to slow down to not act in the same way? And that's where we can see really powerful change. And it all starts by having an understanding of I am operating out of things that I learned and it's my responsibility to change that and that's hard. That can take time, that can take repetition. It's not because I am a bad person. It's not because I am weak. It is not because I am unworthy. It is not because I am damaged or broken. It is because I am a human. 
And my lived experience had me develop these patterns out of survival. And now I am unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because it is unfortunate. It is, it would be so much easier if you just had all the things, got all the things that you needed and you were able to develop into this adult that was secure and saw both your emotions and other emotions as equal. Both myself and others are valuable. It would be awesome if if we all had that. It would also be awesome if we all could do that 100% of the time. But the reality is, is that even when we have that that ideal childhood, that secure attachment, it's not perfection. So having that compassion, because that will build a growth mindset to help us learn, be curious, and change and move forward. And sometimes we do have to almost reparent ourselves, look back at that past self, that past child self, our teen self, and just give them the words of encouragement, the hugs that we didn't receive. And I want to acknowledge too, because I have had some people come to me where we talk about all of this and they still have these insecure attachment patterns or these reactions and they'll reflect on their childhood and say, well, my caregivers were great. They did all those things. They did it all. Um, So what's wrong with me? (laughs) There's nothing wrong with you. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. And maybe your caregivers did do everything you know, quote unquote, right. You know, again, nothing's perfect, but they, they did create the space for you. They did create safety for you. Maybe that did happen. And it doesn't mean there's anything inherently wrong with you. It means that there's something, something happened that impacted how you view the world. We may never know what that is too, because that's the other thing that is so interesting about trauma. We may not necessarily ever know, and that can be worth grieving as well too because that can also be really scary and sad. And I repeat, it does not mean there is something inherently wrong with you. It does not mean you are damaged or broken. You know, we're also learning so much more about uh, genetics and epigenetics, you know, how our genes express themselves based on certain environmental and other biological factors. Um, There's just so much to learn about it. And then how generational trauma impacts us and, not just through the behaviors that were learned, you know, by each person through the generation, how to raise children and how to interact with the world, but also we're finding it trauma, trauma and these attachment patterns can get into our DNA. Now I won't go too much on that because it's to me, at least it's still a fairly new, new area of study. And I don't feel versed enough to talk too much about it. And I do know that there is research showing that, trauma absolutely gets into the body and gets into our genetic code. And so do our attachment styles. I also know that that does not mean that it's hopeless because again, things like therapy, all these things that I've been talking about this episode can help change how we interact with our world and how we experience the world. And we want to keep in mind that there can be a genetic component to things. There can be neurobiological components. Depression isn't always situational. Sometimes we have people who just have more situations where they are not producing as much serotonin as others, either consistently or in cycles, you know, anxiety, there is anxiety disorder, but anxiety is not a disorder in, a, in and of itself. 
we all have anxiety. Just some of us have more than others based on lived experiences. And some of that is genetic. Anxiety, we can think about it, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, higher anxiety tends to ensure more survival. It's not necessarily functional or creates a high quality of life, but we could say it definitely keeps people safer. So a lot to think about when having compassion for our past selves. And the main takeaway from this episode, I hope, is that having compassion for your past self, no matter how distant or how recent, it's not making excuses for yourself. It's building understanding and getting into a growth mindset of how could I change? How could I respond differently? How could I think about the situation differently? Really important, do not invalidate your initial interpretation or how you're experiencing the situation. Do not invalidate that because that, that'll be counterproductive. It's going to do the opposite of what we're wanting. We'll hold that as a, as a possibility of what happened and then open it up to other possibilities too because it might be true. You might be experiencing somebody who is being rude to you or cruel or trying to hurt you in some way. That is a possibility. And we don't necessarily want to go into each situation assuming that to be true. You may have done something that hurt somebody or made somebody uncomfortable. That may be true. And we don't want that to just be our first assumption and go with that as true. We want to be able to explore other possibilities before we decide what, what is true and what is not true. Well, I hope today was helpful and gave you some good food for thought and things to reflect on and some things to try as you're continuing your journey to feel more comfortable inside and outside of your shell. I hope to see you next week where I'm going to be interviewing Kelly Smythe-Dent, an EMDR consultant who I have had the pleasure to work with and learn from. And she will be talking to us about EMDR therapy, her humanitarian work with EMDR, and just all the different ways that EMDR can help a full spectrum of traumas. Have a great week, take care, and hope to see you soon. Thank you.